Hey guys, I'm Gracie. And I'm Stephanie. And we're your spooky neighbors. Today we are talking about the Traverse City Asylum. Ooh. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I'm so excited. Asylums have always been really interesting to me. All of the creepiness, all the crazy mental health practices of the olden times. Yes. And yeah, and uh, I don't know, it just kind of gives you that like eerie, spooky kind of feeling, you know? Ooh, can we start with a wholesome note to add on to the Traverse City State Asylum? There has been a video that has been released of Steve from Blue's Clues. Oh, yes. And he just gave a public announcement just saying like, hey, I've never forgotten you. And it's just doing a check of like, you're all doing a good job. And at the start of this episode, we just want to say thank you for listening. You are all doing a great job. Steve never forgot about you and will never forget about you. (laughs) (laughs) And it's one of those things like we might fall down some rabbit holes possibly about mental health because... This is actually going to be a two-part episode. Mm-hmm. This is a big one. Yeah, Steph's going to take it away on the first part, and then the second part will be on a patient story. So yes. we'll get a whole glimpse of the Traverse City State Asylum. I'm ready. Are you ready? I am so ready. It was first known as the Northern Michigan Asylum for the Insane, and this hospital opened its doors in 1885 during a time when mental health was being looked at through a different perspective, we'll say. Mm-hmm. During the mid-1800s, mental health was being looked at as a real health issue that could be dealt with through proper means of the time, and it was no longer being ignored in medical practices. In the past, the insane were locked up and forgotten about, treated similar to wild animals, and insanity was considered to be the devil lurking within a person rather than a valid health condition. The possibility that people could be cured of their mental ailments was a welcomed concept in the world as it entered the Industrial Revolution era, and the pace of life started to speed up. The mental hospitals in the 19th century grew quickly in the United States, and in Michigan, two hospitals already established uh, were in Kalamazoo and Pontiac. They were starting to fill up really quickly. So to prevent overcrowding, the demand for a third psychiatric hospital began to grow. And in the 1880s, a man named Perry Hansen, known as the father of Traverse City, insisted that his lumber town be the site for the new state hospital. He knew that the lumber business wouldn't last long and that there needed to be another source of employment to continue the healthy economy. And as chairman for the Grand Traverse County, he started to attend meetings held in Lansing. And to get to Lansing, he decided that he was going to go the distance. He and decided, go the speed. Yeah, he was going to go the speed <laughs> of walking. Oh, walking speed from Traverse City to... To wh- Lansing. To Lansing, okay. Which is like a three-hour drive by car. And that's how we distinguish time in Michigan. Mm-hmm. We do it by time. <laughs> we don't do it by miles. We do it by... I don't, I don't even know how many miles that would be. I don't know miles <laughs> either. No, but driving distance, about three hours uh, or three weeks on foot. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> walking the whole way but i mean like what perseverance i don't know if trains existed back then or like probably a horse and buggy maybe and i would walk a (laughs) hundred miles and i don't know if i know the words is it 500 (laughs) it's 5000 5000 okay 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't think that's the distance from Lansing to... No, that seems like too many miles. Maybe 500. Here in Michigan, we don't know our miles. We know our time. Yep. It's about three hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Well, he did convince the committee that they should get the state hospital in Traverse City. Um, <laughs> because he's a lumber daddy? Because he's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're like, this dude walked all the way here? Okay, somebody give this man a hospital. He can obviously go the distance. Hell yeah. <laughs> and so he got a hospital. He got the hospital. It was officially established in 1881, and in 1882, an architect named Mr. George Lloyd was hired to design it. There was piping running through the underground tunnels and sidewalks. Creepy. And that would help the snow to melt the sidewalks above because it would heat from below. Mm -hmm. The tunnels were used by the staff and patients as an easier passage from one building to another. Yes, also creepy. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit more about those in part two. So stay tuned. Yes, please. So in 1885, the facility opened and it had 43 residents and it was suited for 515. These slots filled up pretty quickly as patients from Pontiac and Kalamazoo were transferred by train. They did not make them walk. (laughs) Wow. Could you imagine that? Like... (laughs) <laughs> yeah that that'd be a lot that'd be that, a lot that's that's a big ask <laughs> yeah 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 of people that need mental health help yeah, yeah. that does I not mean, sound like, a nice peaceful walk in the woods but not that's for, a... <laughs> not for that not not that far three for week three walk. weeks <laughs> no that sounds unless it was like some giant survival yeah this know, is like the oregon track. trail <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> the Oregon Trail via Traverse City Hospital. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, I think not. <laughs> oh, man. But there were plenty of really beautiful places to walk around because the design of the hospital embraced what is known as the Kirkbride model. And it's an approach to mental health, which looks at a person's environment and how it's influencing them, similar to the idea of feng shui. And it holds the belief that a building could hold a certain curative power. Absolutely. Beauty is therapy in that way. And you know what? I agree too. You know, you put your surrounding in a, you you build your surroundings in a way that is peaceful and pleasing. You create a vibe. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I feel good when I'm chilling here. Absolutely. Sacred spaces. Sacred spaces. So the first superintendent named Dr. James Decker Munson heavily embraced this beauty as therapy model. There were gardens, exotic trees, greenhouses, and year-long flowers that were all a part of the Kirkbride's therapeutic landscape. Mm. Their dining hall was decorated with white table linens, china place settings, and vases of freshly cut flowers. Oh, I love that. That's so sweet. These principles also included that no restraints were to be used on the patients. Instead, they were treated through kindness, comfort, and pleasure. If someone was struggling with a mental health problem, they could retreat to a peaceful area and were able to roam spacious, well-manicured grounds using numerous hiking trails. So, yeah, go for your walk in the woods. Probably not for three weeks, though. Just, like, however long you need. It sounds like a place that Edward Scissorhands would be oh. a part of because, you know, he's on that, like, giant, like, the architecture of the house reminds me of Traverse City yeah. State Hospital. 
And then, I mean, everything else in Traverse City is very colorful. And beautifully so it's like manicured. you have this one like... giant hospital where Edward Scissorhands, like, does a manicure <laughs> on the gardens outside there. And all the patients are so happy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Trim us a shrubbery, please. And then everyone else on the outskirts of, t- of town are in their bright little houses. and So cute. Going to the Cherry Festival. What a All vision. the stuff that Aww. Traverse City does. Aww. It does have curative power. I mean, like, so many people go vacationing to the spot because it's just so beautiful. That's one of the main places that Michigan is known for. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. So if you ever come here for a winery tour, uh, you can check out the Traverse City State Hospital. You can. You can see its bones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. So the asylum also embraced a work-is-therapy model. And the philosophy included opportunities that provided patients with a sense of purpose. Their tasks could be anything from farming to furniture construction, food preparation, groundskeeping, and other cleaning duties. With light work to keep them busy and a beautiful surrounding, it was believed that many of the ailments would just simply slip away. I love that. That's just like the small foundation of a society, like on yeah. a small scale of creating a society, a community on the hospital level. Oh my level. God. No kidding. So that's a beautiful model. It really is. Like come I to this it. wonderful community and just come here to be happy. Yeah. You know, escape the perils of your life and be here. I think it probably worked for a lot of people. I'm sure it did. Mm-hmm. The patients actually took pride in their work, and in turn, it helped to maintain that self-sustaining community that was cost-effective for the hospital. They even started working with some animals on the farm. So they purchased a milk cow, well, a couple of milk cows, and within decades, it grew to include pigs and chicken and meat cows and vegetable fields, all sorts of fun stuff. And raccoons. Raccoons, probably. (laughs) (laughs) They're coming to numb on all all the things. Ooh, in uh, the 1930s, so they even had a champion milk cow. Her Ooh. name was Travers Calantha Walker. She she was the girl. She came in weighing at 2,300 pounds. Whoa, that's all. <laughs> and she produced a lot of milk. Um, 200,114.9 pounds, to be exact, of milk. Whoa, <laughs> to be exact, <laughs> precisely, oh. my dear Kalantha. Oh, Kalantha. While the hospital was established for the care of the mentally ill, its use expanded during outbreaks of, of tuberculosis and typhoid, diphtheria, influenza, and polio. So between the years 1887 and 1903, they had built 12 extra housing cottages and two infirmaries to meet the needs of the specifics of those ailments. So it helped with so many other things. Mm -hmm. There were southern cottages that housed male patients and female residents were in the northern group homes. The two infirmaries were constructed specifically for tuberculosis and polio. And these were known as cottages 19 and 20. The institution became the city's largest employer, and it contributed to the growth of the city itself. Further, the hospital was used also to care for the elderly, and it served as a rehab for drug addicts and as a nurse training program as well. There was a nurse by the name of Janine Lease who approached Dr. Munson and asked to start a nurse training program. He supported this non-traditional schooling, and the ladies would receive first-hand practice in many of the areas of medical care, and in turn, the program would save on staffing costs while benefiting the patients. 
In June of 1908, the first class of 24 nurses graduated from their training at the Traverse City State Hospital, and more classes would continue for decades. This place was really doing stuff. It really was. Yeah. Wow. In July of 1908, a meeting of the new Michigan Asylum Board took place. The goal was to devise a strategy for the best and most cost-effective treatments for mental illness. The attendees included 10 superintendents and trustees for the three Michigan's asylums, Judge T.R. Mills and Bishop George Deeptill. In 1908, the cost of care was 42 cents per day for the Lower Peninsula and 50 cents a day for the Upper Peninsula. I don't exactly know why that's different, but... Is it because we're trolls, like underneath the bridge? That's like that's a that's another Michigan thing. That if you live in the up in the UP, the the UP, the UPers. <laughs> if you're in the Lower Peninsula, you are considered a troll because you live under the bridge. Under the bridge, the Michigan, <laughs> the Mackinac. Answer me these questions three. <laughs> what is your favorite color? <laughs> <laughs> What is your favorite color anyway? I, I have many. Um, neutral colors and green. Mm, I love it. Yeah. Like, like the dark, like just think of a dark forest and those are all my favorite colors. Ooh. Yeah. Love dark, it. Dark forest palette here. And Stephanie's is black. And rainbows. You <laughs> can confirm. <laughs> That's literally what I'm wearing right now. Black and rainbows. And she has a she has a rainbow sunshine smile on her face <laughs> while telling creepy stories. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Well, there's a little little bit of side note for you. <laughs> so yeah, the different costs for the upper and lower peninsulas, they had decided needed to be streamlined. So Dr. Munson believed that the Kirkbride method was the best cure but it didn't exactly persuade the other people on the board. According to the board, more institutional regimens needed to be put in place while more cutbacks were being introduced to the hospitals at the time. But man, like, he was doing everything he could to reduce costs, like work as therapy model, the nurse training program. Like, he had so much set in place for that already, and it, I, I don't know, I guess it wasn't enough. Yeah. That's really sad. In a lot of, there's a lot of stuff to find on Traverse City that it was overwhelming to research. Yeah. Um, there was a budget report and it was about two to 300 pages. Holy cow. And so, of course, I didn't go through all of it, but the one that caught my attention the most was a budget on the farm and the equipment and everything that was used. So, I don't know, that just really sticks out to me as something that was so important yeah. to the hospital at that time was the mm -hmm. farm. Yeah, like for the patients, for the community, I'm sure that it produced... And also to work on the farm and yeah. to provide that. It's ju It just sounds like very simple and quaint times mm -hmm. that... Man, but farming equipment and everything... Co the cost of farming is way more than anybody would ever think. Yeah. It's a lot. So we'll see how this progression goes, right? Right. We will see. Well, eventually, Dr. Munson left the hospital in 1924 at the age of 76, and then in the 1930s came the Great Depression. Alcoholism and depression were the main cause for institutionalization. The hospital filled up more and more until they were completely crowded and funding completely decreased. Like, bad. If it wasn't bad enough, it got way, way worse. So we have an example of an admittance during this time, and it's kind of nutso. So there was this Catholic woman who was committed by her husband. They had a lot of children. 
Okay, okay. And the husband was out of work. And with such a large family, he had to do something. I'm assuming oh, the only thing he thought he could do at the time. He sold their infant daughter. Oh, whoa. What? I, Hit, yeah. What? He sold their daughter. Like, I don't know to who, for how Dude, much. Like, what? Where, how do you sell a baby? I mean, times are hard, but to sell your own child. Your own flesh and blood? But, uh, uh, yep. I, yep, there's so. like so many, like, I don't know. That's just a statement where your mind could go in so many directions. It could. It, yeah. it could go in so many directions. Yeah. Well, so he let sold, your mind wander. Sold his infant yeah. daughter and dropped his wife off at the hospital, claiming oh. she was no help at all. No help at all. At all. At all. None. But, like, what are you going to do with the rest of the kids now, dude? You can't sell all of them. <laughs> Extra farm help? Mm, I guess. I don't know. Maybe was it's like... Was that before ch- child labor laws were in place? I'm sure it was. Probably. Maybe. <gasps> don't know. That that sounds like a very dark, like... I mean, this is just a speculation. He obviously didn't sell it, like, his infant daughter to the Traverse City State Asylum, but, like, you will grow up and be a worker here. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a true child oh. patient. Wow. Oh, shit. Yeah, that, yeah. There you go. That's a, that's a hint for our next episode is uh, the children patients of the asylum. Wow. No, that's dark. I mean, that's just a dark thing in itself to sell your child. That is. I know. Think, I mean, times had to have been so yeah. unbelievable at that time. I mean, like to have to feed another mouth. That's a lot, yeah. Without having any kind of income while everybody's already struggling, you that, know. You know, maybe we're overthinking it. Maybe someone just wanted a child really, really badly during yeah. the Great Depression and people always want children and he was just like, I got plenty, have one of mine. <laughs> I mean, that joke has been used a million times. You want a kid, <laughs> take mine. <laughs> So by the 1930s, this was, yeah, a pretty devastating time in our country for the hospital, for for life in general. They also just got out of having Spanish, the Spanish flu in 1918, 1920, somewhere around that mm-hmm. time frame. Yeah. So that's a lot. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. So by 1933, the United States started using insulin to induce comas with patients suffering from a manic episode. They're starting to experiment a little bit here. Whoa. Yeah, that's an experiment. Yeah. A high dose of insulin would be injected into a schizophrenic patient to bring about mental clarity. And it was the only known remedy for this mental condition. But later in the 1950s, this treatment was very much discredited because that and, is Yeah, not and safe. just just for like a just to help because I struggled to grasp that, like in terms of medical everything. What is insulin exactly? Oh, so insulin is your, it's the blood sugar regulating. It's like a regulatory. So then, yeah, I guess my mind is wondering, like, so, you know, we know that, you know, people who are diabetic, they take insulin to help their levels and everything. But right, but it's like a very specific, like a very, very specific so dose. If so if you having, did add too much, it would. You, you would just re- pass out. You would go into a oh coma. Oh my gosh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. That just, that just, Okay. Yeah. I understand the severity completely now. That's Yeah, if you get your dosage wow. wrong by like a very small amount, you can just put yourself into a coma. Okay. Yeah, and just I I wanted to paint that for anyone else who is just having like a moment, like a little brain fog. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Yeah, using insulin as like a medical mental procedure, that's just 
Yeah, there was a reason why it was discredited. Okay. <laughs> a very good one. Then let's carry on. Let's see. Yes. So there were some other changes that were going on. Changes in the law and mental health care philosophies brought on a decline of the institution. And by the late 1950s, institutionalization became less and less favorable treatments to curing mental instability. Um, it was more expensive than smaller group homes. Plus, with the new advancements in medicine, the patients could be managed more easily. During this time, the work as therapy philosophy ended and the farm closed. And oh, all no. the animals were sold off. Aww. The planting and harvesting ceased. No. And many residents just sat and stared through the windows as they had no purposeful work to keep them busy. Yeah, that was their job. Yeah. Just chilling with Calantha. Bye-bye, Calantha. And the chickens. They sold them all off. Maybe the raccoons. Who knows? Those were probably still there. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. What is the market for raccoon sales? Can you buy a raccoon? You could actually own one in Michigan. I checked. You need a permit. You. I checked. We can have, <laughs> theoretically, we could have a raccoon here. I think we do, though. We could just, like, claim one, like a wild one. Oh, that sounds fierce. I mean, to have one in your home is a different thing. But we could always make sanctuaries, right? Little raccoon cubby holes. Uh, if anyone has watched Bob's Burgers, there's a moment where Linda just creates a nice candlelit dinner of spaghetti outside the restaurant for raccoons. I just imagined that as our house. That's so cute. If you guys want some spaghetti too, I make a kick-ass spaghetti and meatballs. She does. Grace makes amazing spaghetti. We I had bet. some the other night. Yes, thank you. <laughs> we're gonna get. We're gonna get back to the hospital now. We're gonna get back to the hospital. <laughs> Wow. Bring your spaghetti. <laughs> All right. Um, doctors began embracing new medications and forms of treatment in the 1950s and 60s. And one of these was electroshock therapy. It was reported as emotional hell. Electrodes would be placed to the person's temples and a bite plate inserted into the mouth to prevent <laughs> someone from biting their tongue. <laughs> then a current of electricity was sent through your brain and would leave patients writhing, convulsing for several minutes. And it, they would do this like several times in a row, like in a session, just like zap you, cool down for a second, zap you again. Yeah. Mm. Very barbaric. And what is really interesting about electroshock therapy is that it is still used today. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I think I've heard that in some instances. I know somebody who has continue to receive these treatments. I mean, it's a very rare and like a last resort. And I have been told that it's kind of helpful. Mm. Yeah, at least for a little while. Um, there can be some memory loss. Mm. But they also they don't do it while you're awake. So you're not convulsing now. And you don't That's risk good. biting That's your tongue. Good. They put you under for it. So like you're asleep during the whole procedure. I'm really glad to hear that they yeah. became a little bit more, you know, ethical mm -hmm. towards that. A little That's bit. That's great. Yeah. We're still trying to work with whatever they can, you know, some extreme cases. Yeah. But what they did not continue is hydrotherapy. Hydrotherapy was also used in the mid-1960s. According to Bob Hall, an LPN who worked in the Traverse City Hospital, he explained that the patients would be placed in a tub of water with one's head above. There was a canvas to secure them in the tub yeah, with straps and everything. Yeah. But then their like head is just above that canvas. 
So warm continuous baths would be used to treat patients suffering from insomnia, those considered to be suicidal and assaultive. But you said warm baths because I feel like that does help. It really does calm oh, it like does. the you know, warm baths when you need cold to relax. You, so when yeah, you need energy. You right. Know, you do that with a shower. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they used warm baths for people who were like tired or they were feeling suicidal or if they were assaultive, and it calmed their excitement and agitated behavior. Cold water was used to treat patients diagnosed with manic depressive psychosis and those who were showing signs of excitement and increased motor activity. The cold temperature is meant to slow down the heart rate, and this helps wow. the patient feel more calm. That's really interesting because you think that, I mean, I'm an easily excitable person. Uh-huh. If you splash cold water on me, I feel like I'd just be like, ha, even more excitable. <laughs> Maybe, but, but it, this you is know, actually so something. thinking about it in that time that. Yeah, this is actually something that I learned in therapy. It's called the cold dive. So when you're in like a highly emotional like state, like you're freaking out about something, you'll put ice cubes on your cheeks, on your face, or like a cold water bottle or something freezing cold or like put like a vent on your face. And it's meant to like kind of trick your your brain and your body into that survival mode. So your heart rate slows down. And after a second, like the whole episode passes. Whoa. Yeah. So I like, did not know that. That is a really fun fact. It's a really fun nice. fact, and it's a really fun tool when you're freaking out about something. Cold That's dive. good to know. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the tip. You're welcome. Wonderful. Yeah. So, I mean, like, hydrotherapy isn't used like it was, but not to the extremes. Like, they no, present no. it in some media these days where it's, like, boiling hot, 120-degree water. Or and like then you're in a kettle because that's what I think of, that they're in just, you know, yeah. they can't move or do anything. They can't jump out. Right. You're forced in that. Sometimes they would have people in these baths for like 12 hours. Like just water consistently running through. You would be a raisin. Total raisin. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. So this is where it starts to get more interesting. I'm going to introduce you to a very interesting character connected to the hospital. His name is Dr. John or Jack Ferguson. Ooh. Mm Mm-hmm. Some say he was a revolutionary. Some say he was a mad scientist. I think we both think interesting different things about this whole yeah, situation. Yeah. We would be we would love to hear what you guys think about yeah, this too. Yeah. Please so there tell are us. Definitely some sides yeah. to be taken because it's 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 pretty wild. So to put it all out there, we're gonna tell you all about him and talk about his practices and then we can discuss afterwards our thoughts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he introduced another type of treatment in the 1950s called Ferguson therapy. We'll get more into it, but he was also described as former employees as a jolly old Saint Nick type, and the patients really loved him. His fellow employees thought he did a good job, but others questioned his chemical restraints. There were treatments he called tender loving care. Hmm. But before we get to this uh, and his achievements at the Traverse City State Hospital, we'd like to go over his backstory per requested, and we're going to refer to this interview a few times. So it's by um, a medical writer named Paul DeCruyff. This was done in 1965. He stated, if you're going to write about my work, you kids had better know and tell right out what's been bad about me. Mm. And there have been quite a few of those. So we're going to go over them all. (laughs) Let's hear it. 
So before he earned his medical license, Ferguson had several occupations. Starting at the age of 11, he worked on a tugboat. And he told the captain that he didn't want pay, rather the fish that were damaged in the gill nets. And he then sold those on the streets and made more money than he would in the small wage he would have been paid. That is so resourceful. I love it. Ain't he? Yeah, that's kind of amazing. He also ran two paper routes and worked at a drugstore after school. So he was, like, really ambitious. Yeah, right? first exposure to drugs at the drugstore. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Working at the drugstore. <laughs> Oh, wow. Ooh, in the interview, he Ferguson shared that he said, quote, I'd trample on anyone for affection. That was just the first hint of the mad monster in me, unquote. Hmm. So, like, he recognizes himself. Yeah, that's important. It's interesting. Ferguson said that he was frail and a bedwetter, and he felt compelled to compete with his younger brother for his parents' love. Hmm. Hmm. Later on, he worked in a steel mill in Gary, Indiana, where he learned to curse in German, Lithuanian, Spanish, and Polish. Gary's also the worst. The worst town in Indiana? Yeah, that's yeah, what I heard. Uh, well, every time you drive from Grand Rapids to Chicago, it smells awful driving through Gary, Indiana, because it's just all industrial. I'm not sure where I heard it before, but I feel like the crime rate is really high there, too. Ooh, interesting. That's Yeah, that's what I, at least what I've heard from my parents. Oh. Gary, Indiana is also the birthplace of Michael Jackson. Oh, wow. So there's a fun fact for you. Another fun fact. Yeah. So <laughs> We're he, full of them. <laughs> so he learned how to swear in Gary, Indiana. He did. He did. Uh, he also taught some Polish workers how to speak English, basic English, Aww. in exchange for them teaching him curse words. <laughs> hey, it's a fair trade. It is. It's a fair I fucking trade. Yeah. Eventually, he joined his father on the Monan Railroad as a fireman. Starting in 1929, he continued to work full-time and squeezed in medical school courses. He got married, and within a year, he and his wife had a baby girl. Soon after his daughter was born, he dislocated his knee working at the railroad and could no longer work and slipped into a depression, unironically at the start of the Great Depression. Oh my gosh. He attempted suicide by slitting his wrists, and Ferguson tried taking on less physical demanding work to support the family. He tried to be an insurance salesman and then a bartender and a whiskey peddler. He also sold secret carloads of booze to L. and Ralph Capone at the Flower Hotel in Lafayette, Indiana. And this is where he learned about alcohol insanity firsthanded. In 1941, Ferguson dedicated his life to going to medical school. His wife displayed her lack of trust in him and pestered him with questions about his plans, work hours, money, and study habits. This was the downfall of their marriage, and Ferguson and his wife divorced. She moved to California with their daughter, and that was that. Dude, that's a far move to just... Yeah, cross the Like, what, is there a family there? And, or is it a means of, like, you can't reach me here? I don't know, yeah, that's a pretty big move. But Ferguson seemed to have moved on just fine. When not in class, he bartended on campus at a tavern and met a woman named Mary Toasty. She toasty? Was, she was Toasty, a 28-year-old Italian girl, and she worked there as a cashier. Mary said that Jack was a very large man when they met. Large, like larger than life or, oh, he's large. I think he was a big guy. 
<laughs> and she was just like, it took some time for the attraction uh, to develop. <laughs> but on April 24th of 1944, they were married. So the attraction obviously developed really quickly after that. Apparently. Like, I don't know. Okay, you're really attractive. Right? Like, yeah, I don't know about you. Actually, no, you're hot. We're getting married. <laughs> because uh, you lodge. Whoa, but then in 1945, <laughs> he suffered a heart attack. Oh. And spent several weeks in the hospital. Yikes. The dangers. Ooh. Right around this time was when Ferguson started taking a medication known as barbiturates. It's a class of sleep-inducing sedatives, and he said it blotted out his perspective of reality. Barbiturates. Hmm. Yeah. Basically, tranquilizers, sedatives, that whole kind of thing. Okay. So when he returned home, he continued to take these little yellow pills and Mary nurtured him back to health. During his recovery, however, Jack, Jack's addiction made him paranoid and he started to blame Mary for his misery. It was all her fault, even though she was the one taking care of him. Mm. Soon after he recovered from his heart attack, Ferguson ended up in a horrible car accident and was unable to attend evening classes. Oh my gosh. Wow. Heart attack and then a car crash. And this was after, like, his past of, like, you know, Great Depression, his own depression. Uh Uh-huh, because he And then all this stuff escalating. Yeah. uh, Divorce, everything, and then... That's a lot. ...into this, and Mm -hmm. wow. Wow. So, (laughs) I think uh, somebody did give him a break. The professor, for one of his classes, arranged to have Ferguson work in a biochemistry lab and teach anatomy. He would have to prepare the bodies for the anatomy students. This whole time, he leaned on those barbiturates, those little yellow pills, to help him overcome his anxiety. Mary convinced him to quit, but he began to sleep less and less until he wasn't sleeping at all. Mm -hmm. And to rest, Jack turned to those capsules, and when he needed to be alert, he countered their depressive effects with coffee or Benzedrine, a brand of amphetamine pretty much like Adderall. A little sedative here, a little amphetamine there... You know. Yikes. Uppers, downers, going all overs. Yeah. Living on a chemical roller coaster. (sighs) But finally, after 18 years, Ferguson earned his medical degree in 1948 at the age of 40. In June of 49, he was licensed to practice medicine in the state of Indiana. He and his wife moved to a town called Hamlet, 30 miles southwest of South Bend, This town had a population of about 500, and the citizens enthusiastically loaned Jack $12,000, which today would equal to be about $130,000. Wow. They built him an office, they bought him a car, and immediately patients started flowing in. Mary served as receptionist, janitor, bookkeeper, nurse, and in emergencies. She was there for everything. Yeah, I mean, that's... Wow, Mary. And they believe in him, too. It's a small little country practice. That is so interesting, too. Like, just move to a new town. Yeah, a little family practice. That's he a... must have been very charming. I'm Yeah, I can mm-hmm. see that. Oh, so he also did pay back his debts to the town. That's good. Eventually, at somehow, somehow, some way. Um, <laughs> however, his perfectionist personality continued to cause him grief. And in his desire to be the best, he bought the latest x-ray machine, which pushed them further into debt. So while Mary worked tirelessly, Ferguson continued to lean on his little barbiturates, his sedatives, to keep going through the demands and to keep the practice running smoothly. 
His addictions caused hallucinations, paranoia. He only slept for two hours a week. A week. He was so insistent on saving other people's lives what? that he couldn't wow. save himself. I mean, you you can't that's a live lot. that way. That's like, that's a lot of yeah. things that he's going through and not enough sleep. That's in. Yeah. To the point where oh my gosh. he was admitted to a locked ward in July of 1950. Doctors begged him to stay longer and try psychotherapy before returning to his own practice, but he refused. He believed that he could handle it on his own and he wanted so badly to prove it to others. One night, he received a phone call from a patient who lived about a half an hour away, and he said he would be there. So he got dressed, he stumbled out to the car, opened up the door, and fell in the mud. Oh, no. Mary had to get up and help him. Uh, And two of their neighbors saw her carrying Jack into the house, and she was humiliated. However, she found that the people of Hamlet to be truly wonderful, and Mary said that the townspeople really loved Jack. Yeah, they, they probably, he... like, were willing to look past it and say, like, you know, he's going yeah, through a lot. Right. And, what you know, Mary's so sweet and she's here for him and she's helping him. Yeah. That, like, you know, one of those things, don't be embarrassed about it. Just Yeah. Ugh, man, what a rough time. Yeah. But, like, awesome people to have around, too. Like, what yeah. a, what an awesome town. Good neighborinos. Yeah. We love our good neighbors. Yeah. So, yeah, so Ferguson decided that his fatigue wasn't caused by his inability to sleep (laughs) or say no. His fits of depression were not triggered by the sedatives. His manic spells were not the fault of caffeine he used to drive away the despair. Jack decided that Mary was the cause of all of his problems. So he kicked her out. Yeah. Too ashamed to go to the neighbors because she was a very prideful woman, I think. Uh, She spent the night in the car and threw... (laughs) And probably cried all night Oh, through the tears the next day. He asked her for forgiveness and actually stopped the pills and went back to work. Until he decided that Mary should die. Whoa. Yeah. That's lots of of ups and downs going on. This roller coaster he's on is pretty, it's getting pretty intense. Yeah. So Ferguson reminded himself of Mary's devotion and humbleness through all of the difficult times. In the interview we mentioned earlier with Paul de Cruyff, he said, quote, I thanked her by loading her up on barbiturates more and more. When she was dying, I finally came to, and for the first time in months, I was a doctor, unquote. Whoa, I just got some goosebumps there. Like, yeah. Jeez, so, that's some complete madman, mad scientist, like, to experiment on your own wife. You no, know, he wasn't oh experimenting. He was just like, it's time for you to die. And that here, was, just go yeah. to sleep forever. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Not experimenting. That no. was the true. Yeah, um, he was just, he lost it oh until gosh. he got it back. I don't know. These ups and downs, man. Oh. So he pushed a needle through her skin into a vein with a stimulant, probably caffeine, and it flowed into her veins and saved her life. So he almost killed her and then he saved her. <laughs> he was taken into custody and finally committed into the mental hospital. Dr. Gallup, along with Dr. Franzen, Dr. Phillips, treated him. And through six months of intense therapy, Ferguson said that they helped him dig up and face bad deeds of his past. Jack was thought to be a good candidate for electroshock treatment. But Franzen disagreed, saying that if he were psychotic, he wouldn't want it for himself. 
The kindness slowly began to make an impression on Ferguson. Griff and Terry, his attendants, treated him like a human being as they helped him bathe and dress. And once again, Dr. Franzen suggested that Ferguson speak with a psychiatrist. And Ferguson said, quote, This time I was concerned. I had nothing but Mary, and she just about had her fill of my abnormal behavior. There was no way to go but up, and mm -hmm. I couldn't sink any lower, unquote. Hmm. So one of his doctors gave him a copy of Psychological Types, a book by a Swiss psychiatrist named Dr. Carl Gustav Jung, who taught that the modern man essentially went crazy as a result of a vexing search for his soul. I love that so much. I once again got goosebumps for that <laughs> because we have all reached a point of insanity at some point, right? I mean, I know I have. <laughs> I know I have. But then you find yourself and then you find yourself in a really good space. And yeah. Yeah. It is at those times, though, when it's like you're going through those like really insane times. And it is like a transformative soul searching kind of journey. It's like the Babadook. You cannot run. You cannot look. You cannot hide from the Babadook. <laughs> and your soul is your basement. Oh, man, you're going to have to. And there's monsters in there. Mm -hmm. And eventually you come to terms with it. And then you feed it worms. And then you feed it worms. <laughs> <laughs> Just the right amount to keep it at bay, to keep Gummy it fed. Worms. Gummy worms. For your soul. Or chocolate worms. I like sour worms. Sour gummy Ooh, worms. Yes. Where it's at. Yeah. I have more. Yeah. I have the same palate. It's more towards I don't like sweet. I like sour and spicy and all uh -huh. the super hard flavors. Yup. Yeah. Yup. <laughs> feed your soul worms. That's what we're going to feed our worms. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, our dark, crazy demons, they, they can have sour gummy worms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> There's no other way. <sighs> so by 1954, it was said that Jack Ferguson was fully recovered. He had enough gummy worms. <laughs> <laughs> this was when he got a job at the Traverse City State Hospital as a general practitioner. Being well known for his three-minute lobotomies, 500 patients were assigned to him for this procedure. Wait, five minutes? Three minute. Three minutes? That's three, a, three minute lobotomy. That's the same time it takes to cook ramen noodles. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, you could have a lobotomy in the time it... Makes you to make ramen. Yeah, it was a pretty streamlined procedure. So he would just quickly measure the the point between your eye and um, and your sinus cavity, locate the spot, and tap, tap, tap. There you go. You've been lobotomized. And crack open the ramen, pour it in the bowl. Boom. Boom. Got ramen. <laughs> you got lobotomized. <laughs> wow. So Jack didn't exactly like this method. He had developed a systematic method for it, but he had come to realize that it wasn't exactly a cure. And he also rejected straitjackets, shock treatments, and solitary confinement. He believed that the diseases were chemically based and could be reversed with neurochemical medication along with tender loving care. And this view was completely radical for the mental health scene in the 1950s. Even though he lacked credentials as a psychiatric doctor, the superintendent allowed Dr. Ferguson a lot of freedom to develop experimental treatments. So Ferguson's medication experiments were only conducted by himself and the nurse attendants. There weren't allowed to be any control groups involved in his studies. Again, this quote is from the interview with Paul de Kreif. 
and Ferguson proudly told that all of his nurses have a high school education, or an equivalent. He said, quote, There is no abnormal behavior that we cannot control or change for the better, unquote. He called his experiments tender loving care. And he started treatment on the most severely afflicted of the residents so that he could observe their behavior improvements more easily. So tranquilizers and talk therapy had been effective for him. So he thought that it should work for others who suffered with mental illnesses as well. Um, I don't think brains work that way. With an unscientific combination of chemicals plus love, he sued these residents with Thorazine and Ritalin and insulin injections. Thorazine was another powerful tranquilizer from France, and Ferguson heard through the grapevine that a professor wrote, uh, reported half of their patients were able to leave the asylum with regular doses of Thorazine. Mm. And since his desire was to help his patients rejoin their families, he started prescribing Thorazine. Since his desire was to help his patients rejoin their families, he started prescribing Thorazine. And here's a little bit of what we learned in our scientific research. (laughs) Thorazine cuts down the output of kilowatts from the thalamus, which is the powerhouse of the brain. Ferguson said it was kind of like a reverse lobotomy, chemically known as repressine. Its trade name was also serpicil. So like a reverse lobotomy. Ferguson used serpicil, a tranquilizer, with a Ritalin, a stimulant. And he tried both of these medications together on 225 patients, all with varying ages. All of them were considered to be hopeless. 80% of them significantly reduced their fighting and destructive behaviors. The eating habits of 71% of them became normalized. 74 of them became productive in occupational therapy. 72% could attend social functions on campus. So those are kind of really good yeah, they really oh, are. You have you, know? yeah, you have the numbers. Those those are some good numbers. Got to give them that. As stuff cringes. <laughs> 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 and from here, you will see how our debate will go later. <laughs> <laughs> Since they started the Serpicil Ritalin therapy, they started having movie nights once a month and they would bring a beautician on campus. Cute. Like Edward Scissorhands. Oh, yeah, it was, it was definitely, they brought Edward Scissorhands on (laughs) campus is what we meant to say for our research. Uh Our bad. (laughs) They would do perms and trims and the patients started to care about how they looked. And in my opinion, whenever I put a little bit of effort into myself, I feel a little bit more empowered and better about myself as well. Oh, yeah. On the outside, you know, I thought that was so sweet. So we're going to talk about a really interesting example of some of these patients that he treated with this chemical roller coaster. There was a woman. She was 71 years old. Her name was Goodrum. That's it. Just Goodrum. So she had been a patient for 52 years, had been admitted in 1903 when she was only 19 years old. Wow. She arrived in good nature, but she was delusional. And over time, her condition got worse. By 1921, she was considered to be destructive, uncontrollable, mute, a troublemaker, and she had a hard time eating and mostly keeping her clothes on. Oh, Goodrum. She just didn't want to wear clothes. I mean, I get it. Oh, Goodrum. <laughs> but also, no. Um, but also, no. <laughs> but also, no to clothes. Yeah. Right? So there were no treatments available for such a patient. She was already unable to care for herself, so she spent most of her time laying naked, sedated, and secluded. 
<laughs> Same. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, so uh, in 1942, she received 28 shock treatments. They had no lasting effect. Dude. The following. That's, that's so much. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. So much electricity in your brain. Mm. Mm-hmm. The following year, she was given a neutral pack treatments during which she was tightly bound, dipped in cold water, and these were found to be ineffective. But they, they didn't really figure that out until 420 attempts. 420 attempts. Of dipping her in cold water to find wow. out that it didn't work. Yeah. What a number. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she Give was, this lady a joint. Yeah, right? That, <laughs> that might help. Would, that probably would have calmed her down. Uh, I mean, one of those yeah. one of those things. Like, some people, it gives anxiety. Other people, it helps. Mm-hmm. Personally, yeah. I get anxiety. Yeah, same. I know. And other people, I love how chilled out that yeah. it can make people. Yeah. And it helps with so many things. It does. It does. Plants are cool. <laughs> Plants are great. We love plant medicine. <laughs> yeah. So back to Goodrum. She was given more electroshock treatments, and they were recorded. I think they recorded 68 convulsions were the result of her electroshock therapies 68 Mm -hmm. convulsions her behavior continued to be similar to a disgruntled wild animal which makes a lot of sense yeah after all of that like that's all yeah that's a lot to go through uh yeah what did you think was gonna happen (laughs) wow finally on christmas day of 1954 dr ferguson began administering half a milligram of serpacil crushed up into her breakfast lunch and dinner After two weeks, Goodrum remained dressed for the first time in 30 years. And over time, doses of Serpacil would put her into a depressed state. So Ferguson decided to give her a little bit of Ritalin to correct this. But the aggression quickly returned. And after some trial and error, Dr. Ferguson found a balance. He'd give her Ritalin, but right before she would become agitated, he would give her Serpacil. Finally, on April of 1955, after all of that trial and error, he found a prescription that worked. Three milligrams of Serpacil and 15 milligrams of Ritalin three times a day. With this prescription, Goodrum could go for long walks on the Grand Traverse Bay. She could buy knickknacks from the hospital canteen. Mm -hmm. And in July of that year, she was transferred to a semi-open ward and was able to eat in a main dining room. Oh, that's amazing. Like, that's a whoa. huge difference. Her nurse attendant said that all she needed was she needed almost no help at all except a reminder to keep her shoes on. Oh, to keep her shoes on. That's it. Just her shoes. Like, wow. Okay. Dr. Ferguson took Paul DeCrife, our interviewer, to meet her and said Goodrum could not be called mentally well, but she was sure enjoying her life for the first time in many years. Unquote. I mean, that is quite a chemical roller coaster, but for such a severe case after what she had been through and the results, like, it's hard to argue with that. So along with hundreds of patients Ferguson helped to rehabilitate, there were a few more accomplishments worth noting. He helped to establish the first Boy Scout troop ever formed in the hospital in 1962. And in 1967, he also assisted in bringing a sheltered workshop program, which gave patients jobs and intended to return them back to communities after they were released. So, I mean, he kind of he kind of did some good stuff. He did. Yeah. But now let's let's discuss. You tell me your side first. Okay. 
Okay, so we are going to backtrack to this man has been through a lot. And then I remember in reading a little bit of their interview, him and Paul D. Kreif, that they are sitting at a lakeside manor. And I imagine at this point in time, this is where he's saying, then you better tell what's been wrong about me. <laughs> about the monster, the demon, the Duck inside the of him. Duck. His Duck, it's there. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. there. It's there. And it was just fucking rattling him so mm-hmm. much. But you know what? He found some treatments out there. Okay. I mean, let's not forget that he tried to kill his wife as well. And himself. And himself. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, first he tried to kill himself. Then he tried to kill his wife. So this is the part where the monster is there, and it's it's very much there. But I feel like this was a mistake, a human error where he tried to kill his wife. He did the thing, like, of what he did to himself, which was the super sedatives, then, you know, the whoosh, the (laughs) adrenaline. Oh, yeah. But then it was kind of like a role of maybe perhaps playing God. And then that's how he got the idea. Like after he tried to resurrect her from that point in time, he realized like I can save people. But maybe that was the mindset. I'm not saying that like, you know, he's a fucked up person for his past. He was a monster. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It existed. But this is like one of those things of our life journeys that make us who we are to this moment in time. So Mm -hmm. that moment in time, he needed to be a doctor. So that role of playing God made him a doctor. And in turn, he used that same formula of the sedatives and the adrenaline Mm -hmm. to get people to a certain state of mind. And for a lot of people, I look at the numbers, it helped. Mm -hmm. That's my stance. So it was the life journey and realizing, you know what? I've been a monster. But yeah. then it just, you know, eventually he got in the right mindset. He definitely he came for around. A better, yeah. For a better stance. Yeah. Yeah. He came around from a whole lot of stuff. So my mind is a little bit more like, I think his story is just really interesting. Yeah. In and of itself. And he was a revolutionary. He revolutionized the beginning of big pharma. Like that was Absolutely, where yeah. medication as a cure-all. Uh, I think that's where it started. It's yeah. like right where it stemmed from. I mean, it was the era where he just referred to, like, went back to those pills for everything, which in some cases they definitely do work. But it has, like, grown into this mindset in society where it's like all you need is a pill to fix whatever ails you. So yeah. it's like taking away your own power and relying on something else. That's so true. Yeah. But then also – Brains are all very, very different as in, you know, we're having this conversation right now because our brains and even the listener, you right now, the voice is in your head. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So like the idea of it can help some people, but it doesn't help everybody. And not everyone's ever going to come to a conclusion and agreement and also a treatment. Right. But the idea that that's where society is running to, that's where that's where I'm kind of going. Exactly. For. I see. So that too. using more of these alternative techniques, which are becoming a little bit more well recognized, especially after 2020. I mean, the focus on mental health after what we went through as a as a I'm so glad as a world that. after our world pandemic, you know, like it's become so much more normalized and more options for treatments are becoming more normalized as well, like yeah. therapy and anything else that's curative or good for you, 
which I think has, I mean, it can play a huge role. And I think those are the things that could be tried first before running to pills in the first place. Because what what can happen is that once you like start on one, then you get a side effect and you need another one or you, it's like this constant chasing down the rabbit hole of medication. I agree with that too. It's like an endless pit. Yeah, that's that's the thing. I feel that for this point in time, it was effective. But then building off on your standpoint now, I absolutely believe that we should find our own inherent power to bring back to ourselves as we are the best medication that we can give ourselves. Absolutely. I completely back that. And you know what? If you absolutely need something and it helps, then why not? But trying trying things beforehand seem to be that could be a new mindset perhaps yeah you know and if all else fails then maybe we try these last results yeah the brain Mm -hmm. is such a beautiful magical vast place it is and it's so adaptive that you can adapt your own brain exactly clash uh, classical conditioning (laughs) (laughs) classical conditioning yeah there's a whole lot of conditioning i mean just with like mindfulness, you know, having or the cold dive, right? So if you're freaking out, you have anxiety and something's going on and you just like put ice cubes on your face for a minute. Yeah. And your heart rate slows down. But you didn't need Ativan for that. Like you could have taken an Ativan for that. Or you could just put ice cubes on your face. I don't know. Alternatives. Yeah. I, I, I'm thinking about that too. And I'm thinking about that in a way of um, like an own personal and I'm sure that you know type of monthly pain that I'm feeling. And that's the only time I ever take Advil. Oh, ever. even that, yeah. Ever. Like, ever. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> someone just Seriously. roundhouse kicked my uterus. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, things like that. But, yeah, looking at it from another perspective, my mom, she was very much... Uh, she was more so on the super hippie side of things where I wasn't fully vaccinated when I went to school. I could have been one of those like died a polio children. But here we are. And thankfully, I'm so glad you didn't die of polio, Grace. (laughs) Thankfully, I made it into the modern world of medicine. You eventually got all your vaccines and so we or have something. to. So what I'm saying is, yeah. So what I'm saying is that there's two extremes to that too. Like you can't completely rely on these natural treatments. I remember getting a bee sting and it swelled up the size of a softball. Oh my gosh! And she told me to just rub mud on it. <laughs> I mean, when it's that big, maybe maybe <laughs> you do something about it. Just put the mud on it. <laughs> Yeah, I, it's a very I really can't tell you the time oh. I've seen doctors when I was younger. Gosh. It was that, it was to that extreme. That's pretty extreme. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, interesting. Join us in on this conversation, guys. I'm dying to know everybody's opinion. So lay Please, them on us. Please, let's have yeah. a whole conversation. If, yeah, just wow. like share your opinions, thoughts, feelings. This is one of our favorite episodes here. It's one of my favorite topics. Absolutely. I feel so passionate about the entire topic of mental health just because of my own experiences with it and seeing the journey on so many different ends. Yes. So, yeah. If you're listening, which you are, <laughs> <laughs> that, and you you have thoughts. Even if you want it to be, you know, just like on the low key side, you can email us and we will happily like email you back and forth. Oh, yeah. It's super or, private. You know, yeah. DM us like if you don't want it to be just right on 
Instagram or Facebook. Yeah. We love these conversations. This could be a three-part episode series. It really could be. I feel like it really could be. So like a whole thing just on mental health and yeah, absolutely. But we're not even done with Traverse City. We have we have some good spooks coming ahead too. So we gave you a whole bunch of uh, of history, which I found absolutely fascinating. I think we have a little bit more to tell you about that, and then we get into the hauntings, yay, and the aftermath. Yes. Yes. Are we ready? Ready. So on Friday, March 1st of 1968, a fire alarm sounded at the hospital. A repairman flicked a cigarette into one of the ventilation shafts of one of the buildings, and it ignited a bunch of paper and combustible debris. The malfunctioning systems faltered all of the attempts to pinpoint the fire so that emergency sprinklers did not activate properly. Oh, wow. Meanwhile, the smoke continued to rise, and the patients in the locked wards and the upper floors cried out from the windows. It was Dude. a small fire, but the main center of the wing of the building was destroyed because it had been deemed fire hazard. And some new modern building was put up in its place. Also, perhaps around the same time of this fire, Dr. Ferguson found himself directing traffic on a busy corner of 11th and Division. He just like, I don't know, maybe saw a need and decided to go direct traffic. He just did that on the side. Um, he was a man of many trades. He, he directed traffic, too. Unfortunately, he got hit by a car. Oh, my gosh. And he died on the arrival oh. to the Munson Medical Center. And by the... Yeah. So that is... Wow. The end of Dr. Ferguson. <sighs> wow. What a life. Oh, that was Ferguson. a car crash of emotion and... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So for the hospital, we'll move on with that. By the mid-1970s, most of the buildings had been demolished. At this time, psychiatric drugs were helping many more people who were suffering from depression and other forms of mental illness, thus making the hospitals more obsolete and too costly to keep open because people could be, you know, treated at home. So it kind of makes sense. And then in the 1980s, the healthcare reform changed everything. Money for the institution went completely out the door, along with all of the patients. Oh, no. And the city closed down. Or, well, the hospital closed down. <laughs> <laughs> the city. It, like, you know, it probably and changed a lot of Traverse City since it, it was did, such a huge... It did, because now they're known for wineries. Yeah. Aww. Wow. Wow. Aww. What how a change. The, how they the adapted. tables have turned. <laughs> Adapt and overcome, Traverse City. But what about the people? Well, it slowly declined until it eventually fully shut down in 1989. And with that, the job loss, I think 200 jobs at the time, hit to the local economy. And many mentally ill patients were left to fend for themselves without any support system, finance. They became homeless. And then, yeah, and they also wouldn't really know how to adapt into the actual world because especially like if their families were just kind of have like abandoned them yeah yeah yeah. oh yeah i have um a friend who grew up in traverse city and she told me there was like resident like homeless people that you knew came from the hospital like oh no and not everybody treated them wonderfully there was one woman she said that had tourette's oh that's and she would just go around yelling swear words at people which probably didn't go over very well with the community uh, it's just so sad. But some of them, some of the patients were lucky enough to be released into group homes or to family members 
and others ended up in the prison system. And there was no aftercare for any for any of them. I mean, just abandoned, gone, done. That's it. No more mental the hospital. The doors are closed. It's locked. And now it's yeah. standing as something completely different. Mm-hmm. For two years after its closure, former patients would knock on the asylum's abandoned doors. After the hospital closed, they had That's lost their so homes. That's so sad. Yeah, that was their yeah. home. They're, and they would still, like, go knocking back for it. Like, ugh. And, you know, maybe they had, like, a nurse or a doctor or someone that they really connected with, and they just wanted to see that person again. Right. Just to get some guidance out into the world. I see know. what they are supposed to do. Right. They well, can't understand them, why something would close. Yeah. Well, sometimes some of them would break in and just sleep in there anyway. Just in the abandoned hospital. Yeah, they literally have nowhere else to go. Yeah. Other people broke into the hospital as well, like would vandalize, have parties in there, all sorts of stuff. Fun fact, uh, Chris, his mom has actually broken into Traverse City State Hospital. <laughs> and, I mean, she didn't vandalize anything at all. She's actually... She's not the vandalizing she, type. She's not. She's, no. she's from Traverse City. That's where her tribe is. She just wanted to see some ghosts. Which is such a Linda vibe. <laughs> it's just like... I just want to see I, I some ghosts. Want, <laughs> I just wanted to see what was going on. <laughs> That's all. So perfect. Su- super sweet and innocent. Yeah. <laughs> but also show me the ghosts. Right? <laughs> right? Are you ready for some ghost tales? Yes. Right. Okay. So residents of Traverse City have heard ghostly tales about the hospital Wait. for decades. When you said ghost tales, I just immediately... Did you ever see DuckTales as a kid? Oh, yeah. Ghost tales. Woo! DuckTales! <laughs> it, no, it's ghost tales stuff. <laughs> you reminded me of ghost tales. This, that was my Blue's Clues. <laughs> Ooh, so yeah with a with a setting like the state hospital it is an investigator's dream but a formal investigation was never conducted because of so many because of all of the health hazards um there was green lead paint and that was peeling from the walls in sheets rotting floors asbestos at night there was a major wave of sadness that seemed to descend on the asylum There have been reports when driving slowly past the buildings that a shadowy figure will cross the road in front of them. Other times, radios become nothing but static. That's such a pretty scene to me. Mm. Like, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's probably really creepy. Everything goes to static and you see a ghost in front of you. You see hospital grounds, you see like this very dark gray, misty area, and then there's just the shadow figure out in the background. And then you're just in your car and then you're listening to the radio. Maybe you're listening to some podcasts and then the radio (laughs) just goes to complete static and you hear nothing. You just hear a hiss. You see the ghost, the shadowy figure in the background, and then it just also hisses out too. Boo. (laughs) (laughs) Wah. So there is one legend that says that a shadowy figure of children of the old hospital were seen lurking around the hospital at night. This could be easily mistaken as local kids, except they would appear and disappear despite locked doors and barred windows. Beyond the withering paint and the overgrown vines crawling up the exterior, visitors said that they've seen ghostly faces peering through them through the windows. Others have seen lights on in the rooms flickering on and off, and it's an unwired building. An unwired building. Yeah. 
Those who were sensitive to spirits felt depression and sadness, lingering in the air as they walked by the desolate halls. Disembodied voices and footsteps followed many who enter there. Some report hearing a phantom sound of patients screaming in the night and wailing coming from one of the former patient workshop buildings. Others say that the batteries in their electronics died quickly, a phenomenon that people feel is a product of spirits being nearby. It drains the energy to materialize. Hmm. I love that word, materialize. In extreme cases, some visitors were overcome by nausea and dizziness, and they had to just leave. Psychics claimed that they were communicating with patients who had died there or who were bound to a place for another reason. One psychic felt that she had connected with a former nurse who didn't want to leave her patients behind. Oh, Janine. Janine. Oh, our first nurse. Yeah, our first nurse. Mm. Considering the asylum's history, this place was where hundreds of people got treatment that they needed and deserved. So there's many who believe that these ghosts roam the place that they once called home because it brought them happiness rather than despair. Others, however, feel that there is something more evil lurking behind in the woods or that there is something more sinister happening within the institution's walls. One story surrounds the priest of the asylum's chapel who allegedly hung himself there. Some say that rosaries will break and bottles of holy water will explode if they're brought nearby. One individual witnessed this wicked energy, and they lived a block away from the hospital at a women's center. They were out late at night in mid-October and saw what appeared to be a satanic ritual. They watched for a while and got really uneasy and left. Wow. That's that's a little extreme. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, who would do a satanic ritual? A satanic ritual ritual in mid-October at an asylum? I could probably think of several. I, I can see that. I would I would like to believe that. You know. Especially in like the 80s and 90s. Like, oh, yeah, that was happening a lot. Oh, man. Yeah. So the building today is in a strange twist of fate. The property was purchased by a group who agreed to renovate the deteriorating buildings and in order to develop the land for commercial and residential use. While working on these buildings and updates, construction workers have seen phantom figures on the grounds. Some of them actually refuse to return back to work because of what they saw. Can you come in for your shift? (laughs) Hell no, I'm not going back. (laughs) Hell no. Oh my gosh. So by 2005, many parts of the South Wing were open as hotels and apartments, as well as commercial ventures such as an urban winery, coffee roasters, and a bakery. Even after the full renovation was completed in 2010, reporters covering stories on the grounds have heard unexplained voices on their tapes. And they're not alone. In one of the newly developed shopping areas, workers reported seeing a woman in a contemporary business attire who stepped up to the front register only to disappear when they came around the corner to greet her. Just poofed. Banished. Ghosted. All of these experiences served as a reminder that the state hospital's history isn't quite so far removed as we might think. With renters moving into new apartment buildings, we can't help but to wonder, did the patients of the South Wing ever really move out? No. No. Absolutely not. Probably not. Maybe. I don't know. If you live there, please tell me. I have so many questions. So many. Wow. Tell me your experiences. Wow. 
Man, I would love to go and just check it out, investigate a little bit on our own. I'm not a paranormal investigator, but I do love to just like feel the energy of a place, yeah, you know? definitely. Also, Traverse City is amazing and it's just fun to go anytime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's so much. Uh, well, that is, uh, that's it for part one today. Yeah. Again, this could have been a three-part episode. We have so much to say about it. And we want you guys to tell us stories. If you have stories, whether it is about Traverse City or even if it's about something completely different, just email us. Yeah. we And if you want, we might tell your story. Absolutely. We accept listener submissions. So if you email us at yourspookyneighbors... At gmail.com. At (laughs) gmail.com. Then we could tell your story. Mm -hmm. Perhaps. Yes. Tell us anything you want. And yeah. Tell us hi. Hi. And we'd be super happy about that. We'd be like, hi back. So nice to hear from you. Thank you. (laughs) Well, stay tuned for next week where you're going to hear a little bit more and a whole different take on this whole, on this entire yeah topic so yeah i'll be covering the second part and i'm not going to give you any spoilers you'll just have to wait one more whole week yes in the meantime we will have a mini episode perhaps maybe we'll probably have a mini for you also you can reach us as well on instagram and facebook your spooky neighbors if you liked the content as well then you should like share subscribe Leave a review, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yes, please. We had our first review by the time this episode comes out. Uh, thank you, No Rocks Dinner. Thank you, reviewer. Thank Aww. you. Thank you amazing. No, to we No Rocks you. Dinner for being our first ever review. If you would like to be our second or third or fourth ever review. We might shout you out. We absolutely will shout you out because this is, like, exciting. It is so exciting. If you say hi to us in an email... We will do a backflip, maybe. Maybe Steph will. I I can't do a backflip. We'll do a backflip on a trampoline. I need to find a trampoline, but I will do one. Steph will do a backflip on a trampoline for you, okay? (laughs) If you, like, write an email and you say hi, (laughs) that is all. Now we will say goodbye. And goodbye. Come back next week and crack a cold one with your spooky neighbors. Yes. (laughs) We'll see you then. 